University of California Television presents this podcast of the CIA's Secret War with Dana Priest, recorded at UC Santa Cruz in March 2006. For more information about this and other UCTV programs, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation. I'd like to thank you all for coming here this evening. It's quite an honor. Uh, Our alumni have made remarkable achievements in the public and private realms, in government, business, the arts, nonprofits, and many forms of education. To their honor, we've created a new award this year to recognize their achievements of our many talented alumni, the first annual Social Sciences Division Distinguished Alumni Award. And notice that's first and it's annual, so we're planning on doing this every year. This provides us with an opportunity each year to identify and honor one of our special alumni. The Social Sciences Division today is as large as the whole UC campus was 20 years ago. And our alumni base and their achievements are growing daily. We decided that it was time to recognize this special group of people, and tonight is our first event. Choosing that special alumnus is, of course, a huge challenge, since we have so many distinguished people to choose among. The selection committee put in hard work with so many nominees who are qualified. So I'd like to thank the committee. The committee was made up of four alumni and four faculty members. The committee solicited input widely from faculty, staff, the UCSC Alumni Association, and many others. I'd also like to thank the divisional staff and the development group's efforts that made this event possible this evening. We are very fortunate to have many distinguished alumni from the Social Sciences Division. But the committee unanimously chose tonight's honoree, Dana Priest. Dana graduated with a degree in politics from Stevenson College in 1981. 20 years ago, she joined the Washington Post as an assistant foreign editor, worked on the Metropolitan staff, and then covered regulatory issues and the White House Health Care Initiative. She was the Post's Pentagon correspondent for six years and then wrote exclusively about the military as an investigative reporter. She was one of the first reporters on the ground for the invasion of Panama in 1989, reported on the first Iraq War, and covered the 1999 Kosovo War. For her reporting and insightful articles, Dana has won numerous awards, including the Gerald R. Ford Prize for Distinguished Reporting and the State Department's Excellence in Journalism Award. Three years ago, Dana published a book entitled The Mission, Waging War and Keeping Peace with America's Military. This book is about America's growing dependence on our military to manage world affairs. The book describes a clash of culture and purpose through the eyes of the soldiers and officers themselves. The book was stunningly successful, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize, and won the New York Public Library Helen Bernstein Book Award for Excellence in Journalism. Jody Williams, Nobel Laureate for Peace in 1997 said, anyone trying to understand the interplay between the U.S. military and foreign policy must read the mission. 
Now to more recent events. Last November, the Washington Post published a front page article Danner wrote above the fold on secret extraterritorial interrogation sites run by the CIA. The article triggered a worldwide debate on these so-called black sites. She found that in addition to Guantanamo Bay detainees in military custody, the CIA held approximately 30 senior members and 100 foot soldiers of the Al-Qaeda and Taliban in facilities around the world. She wrote that several former Soviet bloc countries had allowed the CIA to run interrogation facilities on their territory. As you can imagine, these revelations started a raging debate in this country and in Europe and elsewhere. Just last month, Danner won the George Polk Award for national reporting for her work on these secret CIA detention facilities and rendition policies. And tonight, please join me in welcoming and honoring the first winner of the Distinguished Social Sciences Division Alumni Award, Ms. Dana Priest. Well, we can all go home now. Thank you so much. <laughs> no, of course, we're so very fortunate that Dana has agreed to speak with us this evening and following her talk, have some time for questions and answers. Uh, during the question and answer time, please come to the microphone, identify yourselves, and speak clearly. Thank you. Dana. Thank you. Here, why don't you take that? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad to be here. Um, I feel like I have to explain the apparatus. I... Um, <laughs> The cover story is that I had knee surgery from running too much, but the real story is that the CIA has a special ray gun <laughs> that it's experimented with. <laughs> um, <laughs> I came to town. I felt like I have to sort of do truth in advertising, so I wanted to start off by saying, you know, what does $2 buy you these days? Parking at uh, UC Santa Cruz and um, probably... 50000 a year gets you a year's worth of education. But what, <laughs> but what is this, this worth? A, a photograph as an undergraduate, <laughs> 20 years younger than I actually am. I'd call that priceless. So, <laughs> um, so that's what greeted me when I came to Santa Cruz. You know, I thought what I would do tonight is to um, sort of try to bring you along with me how I... Uh, how this war on terror story that includes the prisons unfolded because it, it wasn't at all evident in the beginning what I was looking at. And so I just thought I'd, I'd sort of bring you along in that evolution and, um, and you can see it as much as you can from my point of view. Um, you know, in the first year after 9-11, most reporters at national newspapers were really consumed with the whole other set of questions like, um, what was this plot against us? Who were al-Qaeda? Um, you know, how did we miss it? Uh, what, was the, what was this war in, Af in Afghanistan all about? Um, and, and then we rushed into Afghanistan to try to figure out how was the war being waged there. There were actually a lot of secrets that we uncovered pretty quickly 
to determine that it wasn't a conventional war in any sense of the way, that the CIA working with a small, really small group of special forces had aligned with the Northern Alliance to conduct a very unconventional war supported by a lot of air power um, and, and really was very unconventional in every way. Um, and as a military reporter, I was already covering the CIA by that time, and I knew a little bit about their um, operations there and quickly began to realize that when the government speaks about a war on terror, they have organized themselves to prosecute a war with new laws and different kinds of forces. So although it was a big revelation to reporters to be able to understand what the war, how the war was being prosecuted in Afghanistan, the real war on terror is really led by the CIA. And since I was a CIA reporter, um, it fell to me to, to first understand this. Um, and then immediately, once I realized that this war is really prosecuted by the agency, I couldn't help but apply some of the same types of basic questions to this war as, and to the CIA as I did to covering military campaigns like the Kosovo Air War, which was the last war prior to 9-11 that I covered as a, as a Pentagon correspondent. And, you know, some of the basic questions were, um, how is the CIA fighting this war? You know, what are its weapons? Where's the battlefield? What's, what's its chain of command? What authorities does it have to conduct um, more unconventional ways? What are the rules that it's using? Um, I quickly learned, of course, that most of what it does, it operates as a covert action, which... Um, under Title 50, which gives it a whole set of special authorities that are very difficult to explain, but also just basically how effective are they? Um, you know, Clausewitz said war is politics by, by other means, and so were they, were they going to help us achieve those other means? Um, was the way they're prosecuting the war gonna, going to be overall uh, effective towards achieving our strategic goals, and besides, what are those? What were those strategic goals? Um, we wanted, the United States wanted to kill or neutralize or capture, take off the, the battlefield, um, the pre-9-11 al-Qaeda that helped to actually uh, undertake that plot. Um, but now we know, um, logically, that the other goals include minimizing or just or eliminating, if that's at all possible, um, al-Qaeda, transnational terrorism um, at large. And to use the Cold War analogy, really as a strategic goal, to be able to win in the war of ideology against radical Islam slash terrorism. So again, I'm looking at it with my military hat on saying, the CIA is running, running this war, and it's doing whatever it's doing, and is that going to achieve uh, what it thinks, what we all think that it should achieve? Um, right away, it leads you to uh, an area that you're not supposed to be in, which is a classified area. You know, it's, it's hard enough to report on the military war, certainly during the time of war, but usually what we do is go back after a war has ended and recreate things and interview people when they're not in the heat of battle, and then we discover a lot more about what happened. In this war, and because it's the CIA, that was all off limits. 
Um, so it made the job much harder and remains very difficult to, to undertake. But, you know, tried nonetheless and pretty soon discovered that, of course, we all know this, right after 9-11, uh, George Bush declared war on al-Qaeda. This creates a framework, a legal framework, that makes all the things the CIA does underneath the surface legal um, in terms of the government's legality. Um, only three days after he declared war on al-Qaeda, Congress passed a war powers resolution giving the president the authority to use all means necessary to destroy the people and networks responsible for attacking the United States, and they gave the president the authority to, to determine who exactly those enemies are. This authority came up recently in the debate over the, the NSA um, warrantless wiretaps where Congress said, oh, we didn't, we didn't mean that. Well, if you look at the resolution, it's huge, it's very broad, and it gives the president a huge amount of, um, of authority to determine who the enemy is. And so I think Congress is sort of rewriting their own history on that. Um, about eight days after the, the September 11th attack, the, the president did another thing that was very significant in this, which he, he signed what's called a presidential finding. And that's required under the covert action rule to undertake a covert action. The president has to sign this, and um, it can't be contrary to U.S. law, but there's a bevy of lawyers that determine you know, whether that's true or not. And the intelligence committees have to be informed uh, pretty quickly about covert actions, but in this case, because of the sensitivity, that's their version of it, the, the entire intelligence committees were not informed of these things, but it was a very select uh, number of people, four to eight, uh, leaders of the intelligence committees. So once they had this broad, this was a, a hugely broad covert finding that basically says do whatever it takes to eliminate them, either kill them, capture them, we need to interrogate them, but it was really a very broadly stated thing. What happened after that was George Tenet, the director of the CIA, began putting in place what I think and what I've written, um, what I think has become the largest covert action program since the height of the Cold War. Larger than the, the covert war in Afghanistan, the, the CIA's involvement in Central America. Uh, it goes by the initials, um, which I've used in the paper, GST. And, um, and it has many different components. And so uh, we, I went about trying to discover uh, what some of those components were. And one, one other thing that I discovered is that each of those components, no matter how strange they seemed once we discovered them and wrote about them or how, how unusual, they too were all legalized by the government, by a group of government attorneys who largely did not, largely worked in a very small office called the Office of Legal Counsel, which is a part of the Justice Department. It's the part that really weighs in on government actions and decides whether an action the government is about to take is legal or not. So counterterrorism used to be the purview of the criminal division in justice, and those people look at, um, look at, looked at counterterrorism more like a crime, and, and they could judge it on that, in that way. But the Office of Legal Counsel, where I think the most famous person out of that office is um, John Yu, who teaches at Berkeley now, he and others, including the vice president's lawyer, David Addington, really formed a small group of a cabal of attorneys who, had, who all saw certain things similarly and that are important to understanding 
how they made all this legal, which is they have a view of executive power and the power of the president in time of war that's, um, I don't want to say it's extreme because I'm not putting a value judgment on it, but it is, it is in, 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 the, in recent history, it is an extreme version of it. And to summarize it very briefly, it says, in time of war, you need one commander-in-chief because it's a chaotic situation. You need to take decisions quickly. And that person is the president. And because it's a time of war, not even Congress can step in and overrule the president on what he wants to do in order to prosecute this war. And even some of the laws that are on the books can be ignored in time of war. If Congress really doesn't like something, they still have the power of the purse and they can cut off funding for it. So they had a very aggressive view of um, executive power. And that's how you get things like the torture memo, which is, was a memo that I unearthed um, a year and a half ago, almost two years ago, that defined torture in a very unconventional way. And basically it said anything, anything that doesn't result in, bo- in, in, uh, in organ failure, in permanent physical or mental damage, or in death, anything short of that is not torture. It could be cruel and inhumane treatment, but it's not torture. And the penalties for torture are very different than cruel and inhumane treatment. And they use this executive power argument. So they really um, were using this as a, to legalize something that had not been uh, legal before. One of my other favorite examples of this is the, the change from the term assassination to targeted killing. And uh, as you know, you know, it's illegal to assassinate people. But under, in post-9-11, the view was that al-Qaeda had attacked the United States, and therefore we were defending the United States, and therefore it was no longer an assassination to go kill somebody with a, a predator, and an unmanned drone armed with Hellfire missiles. That was actually a targeted killing in defense of your own country. So you see other changes like, um, like that. Um, interrogations, that was another component that, um, that I unearthed eventually. And, in, you know, think, put yourself in their shoes for a minute. You have, you have this attack. You think there's going to ha- be another attack. And you start to capture people in Afghanistan fleeing to Pakistan or in other places who you know for certain, in many cases, are the leaders of al-Qaeda, like Abu Zubaydah, or have been involved with the plot, the 9-11 plot, and you think they have information that is going to set off a next attack soon. So what do you do? You don't have interrogators, because the CIA was not in that business um, by then, and it hadn't been for two decades or more. So they sent teams of um, psychologists, polygraphers, and doctors to go into the field and start interrogating these people. And when they got people like Abu Zubaydah and Khalid, well, yeah, and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, and they really wanted to, and they weren't cooperating, they wanted to be able to go farther coercively and came back to the CIA lawyers. My point here is that they were not doing things in a rogue manner. This was all signed off on. They came back to the CIA lawyers and said, how far can we go? And the CIA lawyers went to the Office of Legal Counsel at the White House, and they came up with a set of what they call enhanced interrogation techniques. Some of those techniques include stress and stress positions, 
liquid diets, bombardment with light or um, sound, cold, hot, and the most famous one that we've heard about is waterboarding when you're feigning, you're pretending to drown somebody, and most effectively used in combination with each other and repetitively. So they got the okay to use this on the first big uh, al-Qaeda capture that they had, and then they sort of ran with it. They thought that this would be effective for other high-value targets is what their term is, and so they applied those um, to them. At the same time, you know, how are you, where are you going to put these people? And that's where the whole transportation system, the secret airplanes that we've now all written about, um, come into play because you have to logistically get them somewhere secretly. And then where are you going to keep them? And that's where the black sites come in. My first exposure to the fact that there might be such a thing was in Afghanistan when I discovered that the CIA had built a little facility that was totally off limits to the military but was co-located with the military. And, you know, you wrap all these things together, and as a reporter, you're, you're really getting the picture here that, some, you know, this is a new world. I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but I sure want to describe it to you. And that became kind of my mission was to do that. And over the course of two years, I then discovered, and it really did take that long. These stories were very difficult to, to uh, produce finally and to source correctly. But over the course of two years, I found prisons in um, Afghanistan. The New York Times wrote about one in Thailand, uh, Egypt and Jordan. They aren't quite black sites, but they're, they're um, sites in which the CIA, working with the host government, interrogates people. And then finally, the one in Eastern Europe, or the, the, the several in Eastern European democracies, um, which for us sort of had a new quality about it because the previous prisons were located in countries where we either were the government, that was Afghanistan, or the governments weren't really governments that were democracies and certainly the conventional Western sense of rule of law was not in operation. But here in Eastern Europe, that was not the case. You had countries emerging as democracies under the rule of law uh, agreeing to host these facilities and these facilities would be illegal in those countries under their law. Not illegal under our law because it was a covert action that was signed off, but illegal under their law. Um, the other thing that was um, going on, and, and this was important, it's not gotten nearly as much attention as the black site story, but it's what I spent even more time on, was uh, to understand the larger shift that was happening with the CIA. Uh, after 9-11, there was a, George Tenet had already put in place this thing he called the Worldwide Threat Matrix. It involved 80 countries. And the idea was if you, if you invaded Afghanistan and it was like hammering it, people would squirt out all over the world and where would they go? Because you wanted to figure out where would they go because you wanted to be able to be there when they got there and stop them and, and detain them. So um, they had a priority list, and they included countries like um, Indonesia, the Philippines, Somalia, Pakistan, Uzbekistan. Saudi Arabia, of course, what is a priority, but the Saudis said, eh, no way, you know, you're not coming in here. So what they ended up doing is is uh, Yemen would also be on that list because they, they ended up going to the countries who border Saudi Arabia. At the same time, the agency internally is changing quite a bit. It used to be that the 
if you moved up in the hierarchy of the CIA, you eventually could become a division chief, and there are geographic divisions. You headed the European division, or the Latin America division, or the East or the Asia division, and that's where the, all the power resided. On 9/11, that all changed, and the power res- began to reside, and still does, in the counterterrorist center, which doesn't sound like a real big deal if you're not in, inside, but to them it was a real big deal, in part because the counterterrorist center used to be sort of a throwaway, you know, it was a place that you put people if you didn't want them really anymore in your division. <clears throat> All of a sudden, that's the place to be, and it got huge funding increases and tripled in size, and at the same time, there was a shift, at the same time that there was a shift away from the geographic divisions to the, to the counterterrorist center, there was also a really fundamental shift in the mission of the CIA. It went from being an agency whose central mission was to conduct espionage, to basically steal secrets from other countries or networks of people, and by and large using the embassy as cover and diplomatic relations as a way to make contact with people who you could eventually bribe to get these secrets or help you out. After 9-11, though, the emphasis became much more on what I call a paramilitary uh, emphasis, where really the emphasis was these individuals throughout the world, how could you find them, how could you surveil them, how could you destroy their financial network, their logistics support base, and then ultimately, how do you get rid of them? How do you take them off the street? Uh, And that's where you came to the detaining and interrogating part of it. And so the Special Activities Division, which is the paramilitary division within the CIA, also grew enormously from a very small group to, uh, to a, a fairly large group. I don't really know how large, but in the hundreds. Um, the other dynamic that was going on during this period, uh, which drove the government crazy, is the fact that it's hard to keep a secret these days. You know, even though they try and all these things are, most of them are classified, reporters who cover national security are more experienced at it, they've been at it longer, they have more contacts, um, and they can use databases. I mean, the amount of information you can get off a database now is really pretty phenomenal. Um, We used to talk about the CNN effect in war, which was, and it drove the generals crazy because the CNN cameras would um, show up at every collateral damage, you know, every accident in which or mishap in which the bomb went to the wrong place and civilians were killed, CNN would show up. Or they'd show up, you know, after the, uh, they learned to use CNN and they would tell them to go to a certain location. In fact, on the opening night of the Kosovo War, the uh, CNN happened to show up at the oil depot that they bombed. And the whole point was that the explosion would be huge and it would be televised, and that explosion and drama would send a message to the Serbs that, you know, we're serious and we're going to create a lot of damage, even though, um, you know, in the scheme of things, it didn't create that much damage. So the CNN effect was used by everybody. I haven't really named it. I mean, I could call it the Google effect, but that doesn't really explain it well enough. Because, uh, But the same thing is going on now. And my favorite, but in, in the realm of secrecy, My favorite example of this is the first story that eventually led us to understand that there were such things as renditions going on 
was in, it was located in the, a paper in Islamabad called The Dawn in Islamabad, and a reporter, local reporter there, had <clears throat> done a small story saying that this Yemeni microbiologist named Jamal Mohammed had been seen being whisked away at night in a strange part of the airport by a Gulfstream 5 aircraft. And so he, this journalist, put that fact in the paper, the Gulfstream, the tail number of the Gulfstream, put it all in the paper in the dawn of Islamabad. Eight hours later, on a conservative website that I, I can't remember the name right now, but eight hours later, there's a chat on that website, and they said, tail number 379 belongs to a company located in Dedham, Massachusetts, named Premier Executive Transport. Boy, does that sound like Air America or what? That's what they're saying on this chat site. Air America was the CIA's, um, one of their supply lines into Cambodia during the Vietnam War. So already, you know, eight hours later, you've got this discussion going. And then what happens? Reporters like myself go to the courthouse in Boston, which is near Dedham, and pull the corporate records on premier executive transport. And it is amazing what you can get out of corporate records, even old ones like they had there. You can get the names of all of the officers. So what did I do with that? I went back to my researcher with uh, eight names of people. And what did she find? None of those people really exist. They don't have, so they all have social security, they were all in their 40s and 50s, but they had all of them social security numbers given to them in the late 90s and early 2002. None of them had any record of addresses or phone numbers anywhere, no credit cards, nothing. Hmm. Then we found, that from using, again, public records and databases, we found post office boxes that all of those people listed somewhere on those corporate records. And, and the post office boxes, which we could also look behind in our database, found 352 names. And so that's an awful lot. So we, still, we took a, a re representative sample and we put those in the database in the same way. And I'll never forget the day my researcher, Julie Tate, came over and she said, you know, she was really nervous about it. She said, this is so weird. You know, none of these people exist. I'm afraid I'm not pushing some right button because, you know, maybe they do exist. I'm just, but she, it was just so bizarre. And what we had found is, uh, what we had found is front companies and fake names that were used by the agency. So what we did was we told the agency, we, I mean, we were going to write this story and we showed them, we made a schema with the boxes and the names and, you know, brought it there and said, look what they found and well, look what we found. And, you know, they basically said no comment. <clears throat> but that formed part of our story. We didn't actually put the, we didn't put the location of the, or the names of the post office box in the paper because we weren't sure what all those names really did. And the fact is that they could be um, covers for operations that we don't want to blow, especially if we don't know what they are. Well, this whole thing about airplanes more than the post office boxes has just now grown in Europe like wildfire. Every reporter on National Security Beat in every European country is now gotten the tail numbers of every plane with the help of another group of people who are the plane scanners. There's actually hobbyists who stand at the end of runways with binoculars <laughs> 
They did this long before 9-11. And they watch the planes fly away, and then they'll put them in the database, and then someone else will watch it land. So you have this whole hobby network that existed before 9-11 that became really helpful to us and who we made contact with. And they provided the first unofficial flight logs for that one plane and for many other planes after that. Well, now that people know that these are CIA planes, you know, there are 10 times as many plane spotters around. And I get sent pictures of these planes, you know, all the time, saying it's landed here, it's landed there. And I think it's actually a little bit uh, off base because a lot of those planes do nothing but transport, you know, officials around. Uh, But it's become sort of a symbol of, wow, this war is weird and different and the CIA is really involved in it. And we don't know if it's good or bad, but it doesn't feel comfortable to a lot of people. And Europe is also investigating the prison sites because that is contrary not only to the laws of those particular countries, but also to the European Union's human rights laws and those sorts of things. So, however, the the plane story was not the eureka moment for me. The eureka moment in my reporting on this, and neither were the black sites and neither were the renditions, the, the eureka moment was much, more, was much more subtle in a way. And it's when I really realized that the war on terrorism really is a global war and it really involves a very deep um, set of relationships between the CIA and foreign liaison services. If you think about it, um, how would you go capture, how would you go find and capture a terrorist somewhere? Would you, you know, send a man or woman who looks kind of like me or, or you <laughs> who speaks maybe classical Arabic into a place where they're going to speak some dialect of Arabic maybe or, uh, you know, Pashtun or, or one of the languages that you barely have, we barely have any speakers and who doesn't understand the subtleties of a culture, would you send them in to figure out you know, where one individual is? No, you would go and ask uh, Yemen to find the Yemeni microbiologist. But you don't really have a relationship with the in- intelligence services in Yemen because it's always been a country that you are a little bit worried about because they support terror. I mean, there's a lot of terrorists in Yemen. It was... Osama bin Laden's birthplace, and it has a huge no-man's land on the border. So what they did was create, set about to create, and George Tenet was very good at this, to create a whole other set of relationships that didn't exist before 9-11 with a whole range of countries. Some of them we have very questionable relationships with for um, obvious you know, human rights reasons or in Yemen case for their support of terrorism. And and that to me was the and then I and that to me was the eureka moment because I started really getting examples of this to show that um, that we are we were spending a huge amount of money pouring into the development of these relationships, the whole point of which is to create a, you know a seamless flow of information and then a group that can decide what to do with it. Um, the CIA, with Congress's help, poured, I think, billions of dollars into this, willing to train foreign intelligence services to um, give them kind of whatever they wanted in the beginning to get this going, SUVs, night vision goggles. In Yemen's case, they wanted special forces training. They brought 
um, intelligence people from all, you know, Uzbekistan, Indonesia, Pakistan to the United States to train at the CIA facility. And they created eventually more than two dozen counterterrorist intelligence centers around the world that exist now where the CIA, where CIA case officers and analysts sit side by side with, the, with foreign li- liaison uh, officers on a daily basis trying to locate and then decide what to do about s- suspected terrorists in their country. And um, one of my favorite examples of this, and this, you know, drives home the point that the world is not what it seems. <laughs> That's kind of a simple statement, and I would have thought by now, 20 years as a reporter, that would not be a, a big surprise. But it was a big surprise, because you really, you know, as writing about the military, you get into real deeply into national security issues, and you think you understand how the world operates. But covering the CIA, I really had to step back and say, ah, this is really different. I'll give you my favorite example is, at the same time that Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld was standing up bashing the French for not wanting to join the uh, U.S. effort against Iraq, and senators were, you know, banning the word French fries and (laughs) promoting freedom fries. At that same time period, the French were about, aside from the British, the French were the second most helpful country in terms of working with the CIA. So much so that there's the one and only multilateral uh, counterterrorist intelligence center in the world exists in Paris. It's secret. They would never talk about it. They will never confirm it. And I wrote a story about it on the front page, and all the papers picked it up, and they still wouldn't confirm it. It's mainly funded by the CIA, and it gathers together all of the countries, not all, but many of the countries in Europe And the point is for them to share information with one another about suspects. And in a case like Germany, where the laws really restrict the sharing of intelligence and police information, they're able to get that information shared through this workaround, sort of is one way to look at it, through this um, intelligence center. So again, while France is being bashed and taking it, I mean, they're not, they're, they're standing up and saying, you know, you're crazy and our position is right. They're not saying, yeah, but what about all that great work we're doing with you? No one ever mentions that. The French, the French allowed the predator, the armed predator, which was a big deal to, at the time that it first uh, was used, to fly out of a base in Djibouti that they owned. And that Predator was responsible for killing a number of suspected terrorists in the Yemeni desert in 2002, including a naturalized U.S. citizen. They never said a word about it. They absolutely don't want you and I to know that they're cooperating in that way, Um, but they are. Um, So that is, to me, the big revelation is really how... you, You can see it if you're reading the current press on the German... Uh, controversy over the fact that Germany also would not go to war in Iraq with the United States, but but German intelligence officials passed some really key targeting data to the CIA uh, before the war, and this you know threatens to unseat the German government, but it's nonetheless the case. So really, our the allies in Europe, in particular, have been very cooperative with the agency in these counterterrorism efforts. Um, so if you do an assessment of what has all this gotten you, good, bad, your goal, away from your goal, 
you know, what I would say is, is this. Um, the vast majority of the 3,000 or so al-Qaeda terrorists that were captured since 9-11 have been captured, because, captured or killed because of the CIA working with the liaison organization. And about three-quarters of al-Qaeda, pre-9-11 al-Qaeda leadership, are probably dead or in some black site or in some other prison where they'll never get out. You could look at that as the good news. On the bad news side is the fact that Iraq has created a new terrorist training ground and recruiting tool that is in many ways much more potent than bin Laden's ideology alone. Uh, the CIA says this in a very cautious but clear way in its 2020 report looking into the future. Um, and if you add that with the scandals, the Abu Ghraib scandals, the secret prisons, and other abuse scandals, I think that we have now taken, for every one step forward we took in, in finding the people responsible for 9-11, we've taken two steps, if not many more, backwards in having created a new target not just for al-Qaeda, but for any group that thinks like they do, as well as individuals who now do not need the okay, do not need to have pledged jihad with al-Qaeda, do not need bin Laden or Zawahiri to send a message saying, go attack. It's enough that they share the ideology that they are uh, able and willing and are, as we saw in the London bombing, um, using terrorist tactics against uh, Western interests, and the U.S. in particular. So that's the bad news. <laughs> um, um, so are we safer? You know, I think there's, there are those two things to consider, um, and they're very different. One is short-term, yes, I think so, or definitely we're more aware of things. Um, in the United States, but in the long term, you know, I think that you will see this problem of new networks, individual terrorists willing to, to do anything they can against the United States. Now, the one other point that I wanted to make, which I'm sort of, this has become my hobby horse now, <laughs> is that all the things that I talked about tonight, every single one of them, the secret prisons, the renditions, the airplanes, the new uh, legal authority, the torture memo, the, the torturing or the, the enhanced interrogation techniques, every single one of those facts is now known because of the news media, <laughs> not because of a government hearing, um, a whistleblower who went to Capitol Hill and uh, you know, somehow it got out to the media um, not because the government, like in the Abu Ghraib case, was forced to come and testify openly about their tactics. On the contrary, in the CIA case, there have been zero, not one, public hearing on any of the issues that I talked about today. And I don't think there ever will be, because they are covert programs, and, um, and, and they won't confirm them. So what I'm actually doing is sort of making a case for the mainstream media. <laughs> You know, we don't really like to stand up and defend ourselves because it's not really what we do. But none of this would, you would have none of this to mull over and to think about without the mainstream media. I know that blogging has become very, um, you know, popular these days, and most blogs still use facts that they get from the mainstream media, and then they opinionate about them, and they're very popular. So what you have is two converging 
bad pressures on the mainstream media. One is from the bloggers on the right and the left, and they don't have to be bloggers, people on the right and the left who think that we're not doing the job and, you know, we don't do a great job, but we do an okay job, but they don't think so, and they're leaving us. The other pressure is from the government, and the, this pressure is, I think, as strong as it was, it has never been stronger since probably the Nixon administration. The government would like us to stop reporting on these issues, and it's willing to mount pressure to make that happen. Possibly, as you know, the, um, the Justice Department is investigating the NSA uh, stories, and the CIA is investigating the secret prison story. So combination of the government pressure on one side and readers leaving the mainstream media on the other side could result in a weakened media. Be, for one thing, you know, newspapers aren't doing so well financially. I can envision a time where the news staff gets smaller, where the investigative staff that produces a lot of this stuff gets smaller, and therefore you will have fewer uh, avenues to actually, uh, you'll have fewer reporters and fewer newspapers who are confident enough to stand up to the government and say, well, you know, we're going to make our own decision on this. We think this is valuable to know. So, um, as you know, Donald Rumsfeld and the president both called this a long war, speaking about the, the war on terrorism. And, uh, you know, my goal is to get people to appreciate, with all of its warts, <laughs> the value of having um, a vibrant national security press corps who is willing to delve into these issues because the alternative is really not good. <laughs> so with that, I will um, leave it to questions. <laughs> Thank you. You didn't mention anything about the weapons of mass destruction um, in Iraq. <clears throat> and also that um, I, I don't think there was any connection between Al-Qaeda and Iraq. And we, right. We can admit that. So if we're talking about a war on terror. Mm -hmm. There really wasn't a war on terror reason to go into Iraq. Right. And yet, you know, that even dwarfs everything we've done in Afghanistan and everything else. I mean, that's the big elephant right. in a sense. So are we wrong to think that perhaps this administration used the war on terror to go through a wish list that they had of things that they wanted before 9-11, that 9-11 allowed them to have. And, and I think that, you know, when you say that the Congress really did give the power to spy, but maybe didn't know it, and they should look at themselves, that, that's a tricky issue. Mm. When the president and the administration actually went back and asked for that power and was turned down on the power, and then later on said, oh, we already had the power. That's a, that's a tricky issue, especially when Rockefeller writes the letter, mm -hmm. puts it in the safe, I don't like any of this right. already. For you to say Congress should have known better, they're rewriting history, that, that's tricky. Well, okay, um, let me... Let me... But, but anyway, but sh are we wrong to be suspicious that this administration kind of took terrorism, I mean, because of really attacking Iraq with, with no... Yeah. No terrorists there that they really wanted with PNAC and some of these other things that they wanted to be able to spy. They wanted um, to take away some of these rights. They wanted to run some of these prisons and do some of these things. Are we wrong to kind of think that there was alternative motives in this whole war on terror, especially after the 9-11 Commission comes back and says, 
Right, I got, I got your You're main getting F points. and Ds and other okay. things. Okay, I see three, three separate questions there. Um, well, I'll limit it to three separate questions. The first, <laughs> the first is the WMD issue, and probably the question is, you know, why did we do the job we did on that? And, um, to, you know, and so we've looked at that a lot internally and said to ourselves, did we do the right, did we do the right thing? Did we do things, not do things we should have done? And what we found, and I was very involved with the WMD reporting leading up to the war, was, um, was that we, the Washington Post in particular, wrote many stories that cast doubt on the claims of the administration that the nuclear program was as far along as it was, or even the chemical and biological pro program. They were really hard stories to do because the intelligence community, well, the head of the intelligence community, George Tenet, was pretty much with the president on going to war in Iraq. So finding sources was made all the more difficult, but we did find them. What we found when we looked back on it, and it was a very frustrating time for me and other people, was that many of those stories were not played on the front page, and actually that really matters. But the other thing that I think really matters is even the stories that are played on the front page, when you look at the reaction and the public reaction about contrasting, contrast, you know, a handful of stories saying the administration is exaggerating, because we did use that word many times, exaggerating the claim on nuclear development versus the administration who's out in every form they can on the public, you know, on TV mainly, saying the things that they were saying that were exaggerations or that were leaving out all the caveats for weapons of mass destruction, who do you think, you know, sort of breaks through? It's really not the several news stories, even a dozen or so news stories that cast doubt on it. It's their ability to use the podium so effectively and to get on the airwaves. And um, so I, I think that and the fact that there wasn't an opposition party that stood up ever and said, well, wait a minute, the, Demo the, the, the intelligence community produced a 92-page national intelligence estimate on Iraq. And it had all the caveats in there. It wasn't, they weren't highlighted, but they were in there, mainly in the footnotes. Any member of Congress could have read that. And they couldn't go and take their staff because it was in a special room. They couldn't take notes. They would actually have to walk over there themselves unescorted and read it. And one of the, my, my favorite stories that I did was how there were a handful only of senators who bothered to read the National Intelligence Estimate before voting on the war resolution. Same with House. So I think they also fell down on the job in trying to figure out you know, are there weapons or not? On the 9-11 Iraq case, this is even clearer. I mean, I can't tell you how many times we and others said um, when, especially Cheney would go on Meet the Press, is usually when they did it, Meet the Press or other programs, and either directly, but it was often insinuated in a really graceful way that Iraq had something to do with 9-11. How many times we, we, we would reiterate the fact that there's no evidence to that, and that is a community-wide intelligence view. Still, <laughs> you know, there's a poll recently that said the majority of troops over there believe that there was a connection, and at the time, probably, if you polled the American people, they believe there's a connection. So it's not that, you know, we weren't reporting it, it just doesn't, it didn't get through. Um, and I've only answered 
too. But, of course, now there is a terrorist threat from Iraq. That's clear. And, um, you know, the, the transition rhetoric was, let's fight them, or we're going to fight them in Iraq so they don't come here. Well, that was, like, that was a very clever way of spinning a situation that they never anticipated. Because had they anticipated that Iraq would become a hub for terrorists, my bet is they would have had many more troops, many different kinds of uh, equipment and troops there to do something about it. Instead, it caught them totally off guard, and now it's just a great rhetorical tool that has become a reality for many people that, yeah, you fight them in Iraq so that you don't fight them in the United States, and that's become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Iraq now is a... Uh, a hotbed for terrorists, a recruiting place, a safe haven because of the chaos. So, um, so that's my answer to that. <laughs> Hello, and thank you for your visit. I might read this. Um, in terms of um, these sort of CIA tricks, these new tricks that you refer to, and, and the redefining of the CIA mm-hmm. um, in the last few years, um, and also uh, taking into account the media uncovering a lot of these tricks, and, and not Congress, and Congress also passing these, these wide, broad um, pieces of legislation. Um, to what degree is this a, 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 a potentially a deep systemic issue? And, and in such a, you know, perhaps government complicity, what is right. your feeling as to um, these, these tricks sort of um, transcending this administration? Yeah. Well, that's a good question because I do think it is all a systemic um, issue. It's uh, in part... The, the issue is still on the part of the... So where, well, let's put it... Where are the checks on this? I mean, where, how are the checks and balances supposed to work? You know, we're part of the checks and balances, but if you put things in a classified form, we become less so because we don't have access to much of that. And then you have a check and balance that really relies on a small number of people in the intelligence committees who have all the clearances they need to... Uh, to see these things and to be and to judge them, the administration decided to only brief four to eight people. Sometimes you hear the gang of four, and sometimes the gang of eight. And you saw that with the Rockefeller letter that you referred to. Rockefeller gets briefed on this program. He's not allowed to have his lawyer there. His chief of staff. He can't. You know, I guess he could make those notes to himself later. Um, put him in the vault. So how is Rockefeller, who's on five other committees and not an intelligence expert and not a lawyer, supposed to figure out for himself whether this is legal or not? So what happens? They don't push it. I mean, they might say now, and I, and I do think that's true, that they would go back and say, well, let me ask you one more question about that. Or are you sure that's legal? And when they would do that, you know, what would they get? We are positive. You know, we these are the lawyers that vetted this, and this is why it's legal. So in that sense, oversight by Congress is really the Achilles heel. And because, you know, it's one, one reason is because the intel committees are still so um, timid, but the other reason is that we have, for all intents and purposes, a one-party, you know, elected one-party system who is not going to really challenge the president because he's the same party. I mean... That's, that's not, it happens with Democratic, you know, majorities too. But, um, and you have the fear factor. And, the, and then on top of that, you have people who are, I think, intimidated by, you know, being called traitors. <laughs> by question, when you question something, even in the most uh, innocent and good-hearted way, 
you know, you can risk, as a politician in particular, the administration calling you a traitor, and look what they said about the New York Times, that that story only aided the enemy. And my retort to that is, if you think so little of the enemy, that you think they don't think that their emails and cell phones are being monitored, you know, you've underestimated who they are, and you, how are you ever going to defeat them <laughs> if you think they're that backwards, when, you know, to the contrary, they're a very sophisticated use of the Internet and all sorts of trickery on their part to uh, be able to communicate with one another. So I do think it's systemic. Um, the State Department plays a very minute role in all of this, and so when you look at the strategic goal of eliminating terrorism some way, either militarily or by the force of, you know, ideology and by uh, non f non-military methods, then you look at the tool that the United States government has that is the non-military foreign policy tool, and that leads you to a State Department that is minuscule in terms of uh, resources, in terms of discipline of its own officers or um, employees, and has very, and it's standing in the Congress and to, in um, view of the American people, is nowhere near the standing of the military. So, you know, guess who has the most influence? And the, the, uh, one of the favorite, and the military knows this and doesn't necessarily like it. The my, one of my favorite expressions that uh, some general um, told me one day was, you know, if, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And I think that pretty much sums it up. And we have huge hammers, we're well-funded, and, and uh, so every problem from terrorism to to whatever, to, to insurgency, to local indigenous grievances, becomes a you know, military threat. And that's because you have the military trying to judge the situation and they're trained in a certain way. So definitely systemic. I guess someone said that you were the lapdog of the administration. Well, it seems to me that you're more the attack dog on the administration. So thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from University of California Television. For more information about this and other UCTV programs, visit us online at www.uctv.tv.